Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Sennett. I'm a master's qualified digital marketer. Together, we're going to up-level your marketing game. My aim for the Marketing Mindset Club is to give you clarity on how to create and communicate value. Learn the latest marketing techniques, build your skill set, and develop the confidence you need to get the results you want. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Marketing Mindset Club. I'm back today for season two, episode seven. Thanks for bearing with me last week. I was all set and ready to record this episode, but being full of cold, I decided to save you all from my sniffles, which I hope you will thank me for. After all, it's bad enough having a cold, let alone listening to somebody with one. Thankfully, it's not COVID. Just to reassure you, I'm absolutely fine. Just the usual winter sniffles, which is doubly annoying this year since I'm not going out, I'm not socialising, not seeing friends because of lockdown. So deeply annoying. But anyway... Having almost recovered and being virtually sniffle-free, today we're talking about how to write copy that converts, and also what the current state of the argument, debate, dispute, disagreement, whatever you call it, uh, between Google and Facebook and the Australian government is. And the reason I want to cover this is I think it has the potential to affect publishers and consumers all over the world, and therefore I think it's something we marketers should be aware of. So I'm going to start there. The background to the situation is that it stems from a proposed media bill that, if passed, will mean Google and Facebook have to negotiate with media outlets and publishers to pay for the use of their content. For example, this means Google and Facebook would each have to pay a fee for any articles published or displayed on their platforms by the Sydney Herald. The idea behind it is to redress the balance of advertising revenue that goes to the top tech companies versus the media outlets. In an article published before Christmas, The Guardian said that for every $100 of online advertising spend, 53 goes to Google, 28 to Facebook and 19 to everybody else. So you can see the kind of situation that this media bill is designed to address. The draft code was elevated in priority as the pandemic affected regional newspapers and reduced circulation. So revenue is obviously key to keeping these businesses open, which is why it's been brought up in the agenda. It recently reached Parliament and they are hoping to get it passed before the end of this session, which is February the 25th. So coming up in a few days. According to ABC News, there were some recent changes to the bill that would mean publishers are paid in lump sums rather than pay-per-click. Not really sure whether that's a good thing or not, but I think that's kind of minor in the situation. So apart from the obvious financial implications, the objection from Google is that as part of this process, it would be forced to disclose details about the algorithm. And as we all know, they are famously secretive about it. They said this would essentially break the internet in inverted commas. Facebook, however, is in a different situation in that the content shared on its platform is sometimes not put there by them, but by the users who post the links. So Google has responded by threatening to withdraw its search engine entirely from the country, which handles around 95% of the country's search queries. So that would leave a huge gap in the market, uh, which Microsoft has eagerly eyed, naturally, and is making moves to step in. But recently, it seems Google may be coming to terms with the bill, as in recent days, we're hearing more and more deals are being made with the large media groups. So there could be an agreement reached without disruption to Google search or news products in Australia. 
But despite being equally disgruntled with the potential bill, Facebook has responded quite differently by threatening to stop all Australian users sharing news stories on the platform. And at the time of recording, which is the 21st of Feb 2021, I'm hearing that this has actually happened. Someone in my network on the ground in Australia said that news stories had disappeared overnight from the platform and that some government agency posts had been removed. And in the follow-up days uh, since that happened, which was Thursday, I believe, uh, a story from the BBC said, Australians on Thursday woke up to find that Facebook pages of all local and global news sites were unavailable. People outside the country are also unable to read or access any Australian news publications on the platform. So obviously quite a big move by Facebook there. And since then, it's been reported that the ban has had other probably unintended consequences. Some Australian emergency services and health organisations have also found that their pages have been affected, but some have since been restored. So it's meant a temporary blackout on information about COVID and vaccination rollouts and all manner of things that were, I think, unintended consequences. But, you know, who knows? There's also been an increase in misinformation on the platform and some say it's because of the absence of factual news that now leaves a huge void for things like hate speech to overwhelm the platform. Now, as you might imagine, this situation is problematic in a great many ways. It could set a global precedent for how media companies and the big tech companies operate and interact. Now, Google has already withdrawn its news product in Spain over a similar situation. So, Maybe this time they're trying a different approach by trying to negotiate, because obviously they can't just withdraw from every market that decides it wants to challenge how Google works and how it consumes content. But these kind of challenges over copyright or usage are happening already all over the world. And in fact, Microsoft are in support, at least of the bill in Australia. They reportedly said, the code reasonably attempts to address the bargaining power imbalance between digital platforms and Australian news businesses. But this leads me to think, what if Google in particular declines to pay existing media providers for, the, for their news and decides that it's in their own interest to create their own local news content? Does that mean we're going to see current affairs according to Google? And then that begs the question of who is going to moderate and regulate that? I am definitely concerned that we could end up in a scenario where Google is not only integrated with our entire lives, in our homes, in our world, they're also in control of most of the journalism we consume. And it also concerns me that in the void of accurate reporting on Facebook, misinformation will spread like wildfire. And it's already a challenge for Facebook, so without the facts, a passive audience won't probably seek to verify what they're seeing on a platform. So it could have huge implications. And I also have concerns for regional journalism and the independence. Google seems to be striking deals with some of the, the big media giants, but what about the smaller local papers and the sites that are so important for those living in those communities? Is Google going to support them in a proportionate way with the way they have been with the media giants? So one report I read found in a study of news stories across different US counties that national news outlets were favoured over the local ones. So the same could be true globally, which leads to a larger question about how wide our view of the world is when it's viewed through a search engine. But that feels like a huge rabbit hole to go down, and I'm not sure that's useful right now. The point is that we as marketers need to keep an eye on this situation because it may affect our future channel selection for acquisition activities. Google Ads is 
often such a prominent feature in those strategies because of its coverage. And if they do decide to withdraw it from the Australian market, anyone doing business in that country will need to diversify their strategy. And although Microsoft have said that Bing is ready to step in, I suspect we'll see a boost across many of the other engines as well. So it might be time to give your strategy a shake up, give it a backup plan, um, and also look at it from a priority perspective. So if acquisition is about to go through a big upheaval, why not turn your attention to loyalty or upselling or customer retention? It could end up being more cost effective for you and it could also protect you from the potential disruption to your bottom line figures that a global shift like this could have. I've written more on this topic on my company's blog this week and I will link to it from the show notes. So that's as far as I wanted to delve into that issue. I just wanted to highlight that you as a marketer need to be aware of the situation and how you can protect yourself from it and protect your business's bottom line from it. So moving on to the other topic I want to talk about today, it's about writing copy that converts. And it's a topic I've been thinking about recently because I've been looking into the differences between functional and emotional messaging. I find it really interesting how copy can connect with customers in different ways, depending on the words used and the phrasing. I think writing copy is something that every marketer is going to have to do at some point in their career. And whether that's client facing or customer facing or internal, we can't escape the fact that we all write words every day. So how do we choose the right words to connect with the audience we're talking to and get them to take the action that we want? In order to get into this topic, we need to start thinking about our audience needs. As with all marketing, start with what your audience wants and who they are. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here that everyone has heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But for those who haven't, I've included a diagram in the show notes, which can be found at marketingmindset.club. And just to briefly describe what it is, it's a way of expressing human needs that starts with the basic physiological needs like food, water, shelter. And then the pyramid builds up right up to self-actualization, which is about achieving one's own potential. And the theory is that human beings are not driven alone by physical stimuli, rather that once each level of need is achieved, human beings aim towards the next level and actually self-actualization and being their best selves is the highest goal. Now we know that most successful brands connect with their audience on an emotional level. People buy brands because of how they feel about them, not just what the product does for them physically. The brands help customers with their decision making. They provide safety, reassurance, they save time. And we know that customers choose brands that are an extension of their own personalities or further their own values. But how do we speak directly to those needs in our marketing? Well, you need to think about how we're expressing the functional versus the emotional benefits of the product or the service that you're marketing. There's a role for both approaches in your copy, and it depends on the phase of the user journey, which approach a customer will find helpful. And since we know that customer journeys are no longer linear, they can't be thought of as start to finish in a straight line, the needs of the customer will change depending on that stage. So you have to have copy available and information out there that is structured in both ways. For instance, if you take Coca-Cola's Share a Coke campaign, this was the initiative that put names on the bottles. So you could buy your friend a personalized bottle of Coke and it would have their name already printed on the label. 
It started off in Australia in about 2011, I think, and was so popular it was adopted worldwide and it became a huge thing. And the thinking behind it was that it was designed to create a more personal relationship with consumers and inspire shared moments of happiness, according to the Coca-Cola Australia website. So what they did was they took the top 150 names in the country, so starting out in Australia, they were printed onto bottles and, like I said, it became so popular that it rolled out globally and so each area had names personalised to the locality. Now, this type of messaging worked because it connected with the audience on an emotional level. Everyone wants to be happier, they want to spend more time with friends and loved ones. It speaks directly to humans on a primal level because essentially we're a herd animal. But for someone who wanted to know how many grams of sugar are in full fat Coke, for instance, that messaging wouldn't have fulfilled that need, but the ingredients table would have. So that's the balance between functional and emotional messaging. We humans think we're so logical and we think we're such rational thinkers, but most of the time that's not true at all. The lizard brain, or limbic system, is where all of our primal instincts live, our fight or flight mechanism, our emotional decision-making centre, it's where mood, emotion and addiction all live. And much of our decision-making instinct is there, and if we see something that connects with us on an emotional level, we're much more likely to go for it rather than assess it rationally, because it comes down to our need to preserve energy. We'll take the easiest route. So how can you, as a marketer, use this knowledge to write copy that converts? Well, step one, know your audience. As I said, this is the key to your success in every part of your marketing. Understand their situation. Understand what will connect with them on an emotional level. It's also about knowing which channels you're writing for. So where will your audience see this and what context might they be viewing it in? You've got to get all of that together in order to speak directly to them at the moment that they're in with the challenges that they face. And then step two is knowing your offer. So what problem does your product or offer solve? Where are the emotional impacts of that problem or that challenge? And what might somebody be feeling or experiencing that could be eradicated or solved with your product? That's the essential of the value proposition that we talked about at the very beginning of this show. I think it was series one, episode one. I think it was right off the bat. We talked about how to make an effective value proposition. And then step three is actually writing the words. So writing copy that connects emotionally is tricky because we tend towards the functional nature of the product we're trying to sell. A lot of marketers I've met are very under the skin of their products and their offer. You know, they know exactly what it'll do, how it'll do it. So drawing back from that and elevating up to an emotional level takes time and also requires you to slightly disconnect from that functional element. Getting to a point where you've got copy that emotionally connects can take several revisions, but I have got some pointers here to remember. The first one is to keep it concise. A headline should only be between five and 20 words. Don't use four words when one will do. And I've also included a link in the show notes to an article on Copyblogger that gives you 10 example headlines. And they've got some great ones in there, like who else wants blank? Or now you can have, brackets, something desirable, brackets, great circumstance. So it gives you an idea of how to craft a headline that will hit on an emotional level. And then you need to think about power words. So these are words in the English language that make an impact on the reader. And 
they're often at the end of a scale. So for instance, if you think about the difference between sad and devastated or large and gigantic, the scale of what we're talking about in both those instances is considerably larger than the original word that we talked about. And there are a ton of articles written about these power words. And again, I've linked to one from the show notes that will give you, I think, about 410 different options for power words. And finally, the call to action. And this is the bit that often requires the most amount of thought and effort. It's the bit where you can make or break whether your user will take the action you've been trying to inspire in them. If it's in the form of a button and you write submit for that button text, you have already lost and all of this has been for nothing. There are so many more powerful things that you can do here and that you must do here. So microcopy or button text in this case is so, so important to that conversion action. You need to incorporate what the user is going to get into that button. And you've only got a few words to do it, which is why it is so challenging. So you could try things like get my free download as the button text or join the club or literally anything other than submit will probably work. But that brings me on to step four, which is test, test and test again. You won't know what is going to truly resonate with your audience until you test it. You have hopefully got some really good insights up front about your audience, whether you've built your audience insights on personas that you've created through desk research or actual customer data, which is always better. You're still not going to know how this new copy is going to perform. So test different headlines, different calls to action, body copy and the different channels that you're going to put it on. But make sure you're doing it in a methodical way so you can identify the lever that's making the most impact. Otherwise, you won't know which tactic or which one, which element is really causing the action. So the next time you're racking your brains about how to create copy you know will resonate with your users, think about how to appeal to them on an emotional level. Remember, a buying process starts with a problem identification. If you can speak to alleviating the problem or making something better or how it will feel to use your product or be part of your organisation, you are definitely onto a winner. And that's all I have for you this time. I hope you're all staying well and keeping busy. Thank you so much for coming back to the Marketing Mindset Club. It's always great to have you here. If you found this episode useful or you want to chat further with me, pop me a DM on Instagram at Marketing Mindset Club. If you haven't yet subscribed or left a review, please consider doing so if you're getting value from the show because it really helps me grow the club and reach more marketers and support more people, which is the goal. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.